Welcome to 24 Faithful. We are excited to be back today talking about 24, season number two. We're going to be getting into the middle part of the season as we progress through this year, mostly covering season, or episodes 7 through 12. But before we do that, though, Bradley is back with us. And since he was unable to be with us last week, he has a couple things to share from the first part of this season as well. So, Bradley, thanks for joining us. I was stuck in uh, San Jose with Aunt Carol last week, unfortunately. <laughs> and I think that is actually where Joel is today. He's not here either. Yes. <laughs> you got to appreciate being able to do that. And so you went almost as far as you can get in the United States to be able to get yourself away from the podcast, but we found you. Yeah, I avoided so, the podcast and I avoided the nuclear bomb. All is fine. So, it's the important things. So her house is safe. That is a safe <laughs> place to be. So that was a good call from Jack. But anyway, so so what were your thoughts on the first part of the season? You know, I haven't rewatched season two in a very long time, actually. And obviously for the purpose of this podcast, I've been doing that. And it kind of struck me, a lot of people consider season two one of the stronger, I think. But the first six episodes are very much a mixed bag. Um, the Jack stuff is great. I really like depression element. I say depression element that, you know, the, you know, it, well, it is depression element, isn't it? I think he, you know, he comes into this season, obviously still sort of reeling from the death of Terry. He's estranged from his daughter, Kim. He's living by himself. I mean, he, he works at CTU, but he doesn't work at CTU. Um, he goes to see Kim in that first episode, goes back to his new apartment and just sort of slumps on the sofa. And I think that's kind of the idea is that that's how he spends his days. He sits on the sofa. He looks at his photo of his wife. He maybe even considers suicide, possibly. And that's it. And that's all he does. And I really like that angle of it. Him coming back in is great. The hacksaw scene is one of the best 24 scenes ever. You know, his alias Jack Roush is horrific as a character. But, you know, it's great to see Jack embody it. I really, really like what he does with Eddie's crew and that search for Wald. I mean, episode three is, I think, the most tense the show had been to that point. I think season one, although it is sort of staggeringly tense throughout the first season at times, I think that that episode three where everything's building up to CTU is going to be bombed. I think that is the most tense, the most, right, we're fighting against the clock here kind of feeling that we've had at any point up to this this stage um so you know really impressed with that episode and of course we we come into sort of episodes five and six and we'll talk about a lot more in a couple of minutes but jack and nina's first interactions you know him going in there firing the gun at the wall to try and intimidate her throwing her up against the wall all that it, it, it's fantastic i think Kiefer sutherland really nails it that's the great parts the stuff with david palmer is good i think uh, you know, Eric Rayburn is evil. Um, Timothy Carhart of Beverly Hills Cop 3 villain fame kind of just carries that over into 24 here. Uh, let's everyone at CTU potentially die, which is fantastic for the National Security Advisor. Um, but, you know, you know, Dennis Haysburg is continually great. It's always a lot of fun just seeing David in action now, particularly now that he's president. The one thing I didn't mention at CTU actually was obviously Mason. I don't, to be honest, we'll come into this a lot more in, in the rest of this podcast, but Mason is not at all sympathetic in these first six episodes. There is a brief moment where you you do feel sorry for him when it, you find out that he's going to die within a week, but obviously you know, you know it's going to be that day. There is that, that brief moment of sympathy, but he's still a terrible person. I mean, he kills Paula. I think it's the right thing that he, you know, it, it, he makes the right decision, but ultimately he has killed this woman who's 
innocent, just wanted to make her way in CTU, doing the thing that she loved. And he is responsible for her death. But apart from that, yeah, I'm still not massively keen on Mason in these early episodes. That does very quickly change. Uh, and, and then aside from that, I mean, Kate Warner storyline, Marie Warner storyline, Laura Harris as Marie is sort of just the whiny sister, doesn't really have any sort of character traits at this point. Kate, I mean, you know, I really like Kate as a character, particularly in the episodes that I've then gone on to watch. And she does become really important to the story and really good to watch. But these first six episodes, my word, Sarah Winter just has no ability to convey this sort of this side of Kate which all she has at this point Kate is she snoops into Razor and she looks shocked that's her that's her personality traits in these first six episodes and there's nothing more to it at all and it's really really tiring to watch and I kind of forgot how really mind-numbingly dull and frustrating and cringeworthy it was at times you know the screaming and screeching at each other marie and kate over all these all this sort of wedding stuff that's about to go completely wrong because kate decided to do what is a fairly reasonable thing and look into this guy that's coming into her family and has access to all of her family's money and everything like that it's yeah it's it's not great at this point at all and i mean the less said about kim the better you know like <laughs> we talked a lot about Joel obviously really hated Terry in season one, but this is so much worse than anything in season one. This Kate and Megan and Gary Matheson story. The only element of it I like is that Kim at 17, I think she's meant to be in this season. She was 15 in season one. So it makes sense. Kim having lost her mother, having been estranged from her father, sort of all, all this sort of trauma that's happened to her, the kidnapping, everything like that has become a very responsible person. You know, the way she looks after Megan in the early episodes or the, sorry, the first episode when, everything seems fine. And then after that, when everything is very clearly not fine, when she's being abused, when she has to take Megan away from Gary, when they're on the run, all of that, there is a real nice layer of responsibility as an adult to her. And I really appreciate that. The storyline itself is complete nonsense. I think Billy Burke works as the, the creep of Gary, but ultimately it's just, every time you cut back to it, it feels like, okay, can we please get back to the other stuff now? Because this is not enjoyable to watch yeah definitely agree that was definitely very subpar storyline i realized that they had to have something for kim or felt like they had to have something for kim and so they had that in there but they spent probably about 10 times longer on it than they could have just shown her hey she's doing this and then maybe an episode later and says oh yeah by the way she's still doing this but just a quick that, little mention we that, don't need a <laughs> that is how it feels to be fair and and certainly in in <laughs> the six that we're talking about today i mean maybe we just go into talking about kim very briefly here because you know from episode seven they're on the run with her, Miguel and Megan, and Carla's dead. That, I mean, they don't appear until the last 10 minutes. I think the clock's gone 2.50 by the time they appear in this episode. It's like we check in with them and there's this big reveal. It's the end of the episode, Carla's dead. And then they spend a couple of hours at the police station. They get transported and then she crashes the car. And then she spends an hour and a half, two hours out in the woods get exploring, trying to find her way back, getting caught in a bear trap, getting eyed up by a cougar. I mean, nothing happens. You have six hours where you get from them escaping the hospital to Kim is tied up in a bear trap, potentially scared that a coup is going to come and eat her. And there's nothing to enjoy about it apart from Megan's goodbye to her. 
I think Alicia, Alicia Cuthbert is really nice in that when she realizes that Megan's going to go be safe with her aunt in, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it, it's somewhere sort of a hundred miles outside of Los Angeles. And it's a really, really nice scene having had this, like I said, the responsibility angle in the first few episodes, this connection that clearly exists between them to see Kim so overjoyed at the fact that Megan's going to be okay. She's not going to be affected by the nuclear bomb. She's away from her abusive father as well. That's a really nice scene. Everything else I could really live without. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of good on the Kim storyline at all. So <laughs> I feel sorry for the cougar though. That would have been. <laughs> yeah. The cougar gets a bad rep because I mean, his performance in this season is, is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> Does really, really well. But yeah. So back to Jack though, we have Jack and Nina as we go into this, they're going after Fahin. Just everything between Jack and Nina, it's like really amplified. I mean, you kind of comparing the relationship between Jack and Nina or their interactions in season one versus season two. There's obviously a stark contrast because of how season one ended with, with Terry, but they both want to kill each other. And there's that constant tension where one has the upper hand for a little bit, then the other has the upper hand, and then they just kind of pass it back and forth. It's like It's like playing tennis or, or soccer or something. And I'm sorry, not soccer, it's football. So... <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, we've, I think we've talked before, Kiefer Sutherland, obviously fantastic. Um, Sarah Clark opposite is is great. Um, there's a nice scene after they go in to take down Fahim where Jack really toys for a second with killing her. You know, he's alone on the steps. She's trying to escape, has no weapon. She drops the weapon and he could just shoot her right there and say whatever he likes, that she tried to escape. She pointed a gun at him. It was his only shot, blah, 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 blah. All the other excuses that he does end up using in a legitimate fashion at various points during the show and he mm-hmm. agonizes over it for sort of 20 seconds and then decides not to do it and you can see keith is great that you can see this is a massive massive struggle for jack the revenge mason talked about is very much there and why wouldn't it be if he killed his wife but he also recognizes very smartly that they still need her for information so that battle is really nice the scene on the plane as well which seems a little bit out of place actually at the end of that episode, but the scene where Jack describes the Sunday before Terry got killed and then going to the pier and sort of how wonderful person she was, she could go and have conversations with random strangers like they were her best friend and how he wishes he could do that and how that's what Nina took from the world and from Jack and from Kim. And it's just really, really nice. Yeah, that part was a nice touch because you get to really see kind of Jack's, more of his personal side, kind of his inner teddy bear almost (laughs) you don't get to see a lot of that with jack but there's just these little moments here and there to where that kind of glimpses a little bit and so a lot of those moments have to do with touching his family so these memories of terry some different things with kim as we see later on in the next section with the when he's in the plane with mason or unknowingly with mason but there's that moment there and you can you can really see his heart actually you see it here too when nina is negotiating with the president over his death and so she asked for immunity and they're like well we already gave you immunity she's like well this is a crime that hasn't been committed yet and they're like well what is that and she's like the murder of jack bauer and the whole mood obviously changes at that point and i know you have some notes here about Haysburg, but with jack as he's i mean he's come to grips with this he's come to accept it and and so he's he's talking to the president saying okay just make make sure to take care of my daughter tell her i love her and you can just see it and it's tearing him up but 
he's trying to compose himself for David's sake, I believe. I don't think he's trying to look strong for Nina. I don't think he needs to, but but I think he's trying to make it easier for the president to be able to make the decision at that point. See, I don't agree. I think he is, well, to a point I don't agree. I think he is putting on a performance, and I think that performance is that he's hiding his joy at the idea of being killed, to be honest. I mean, when there's a really, a real smile that comes on Jack's face when Palmer says that she'll be granted immunity if the information pans out. You know, this ties into what I was saying earlier about the depressive streak and how he is still miserable over Terry's death. And, And it doesn't get resolved until Jack and Mason are on the plane. And we'll talk about that next week. But Jack genuinely doesn't want to live, I don't think, at this point. You know, he'll carry on. He has been. But he's in this situation where he could get killed. He's going to get killed. And he's very much at peace with that, I feel. That's a good point. Yeah. So obviously they, with Jack and Nina, they get attacked by the core snake crew. And if I remember correctly, that's what leads to Nina getting getting the upper hand in this situation. So obviously there's that thread there of the coral snake, which then leads down another path that, okay, we have an internal situation going on as well. They obviously followed that, but we'll get to that a little bit later as we, we move through some of this here that ties in with Roger Stanton and all that. But I think the scene with Nina asking for immunity and David Cronk is Dennis Haysbert's best scene in the show. You can see it's absolutely tearing him up. He he certainly is trying to be as strong as he can. You know, you can see him holding back tears as he's about to tell Nina that his, one of his best friends, she can kill him. It is really harrowing to watch, even though you know that Jack's going to get out of it somehow. He's going to be fine. He's not going to die. It is really sad to watch Haysbert react this way and i think he nails it Mm -hmm. so then on the other side of this though we have the whole warner family situation that's uh developing even more and and so i know you have several notes here about jack rescuing kate so what's your take on that well it's nice actually that this happens because it isn't until it is it is the exact moment that she and paul copton get kidnapped at the end of episode eight yeah, eight. The the exact moment that they get kidnapped is the exact moment that Kate has a reason to exist in this show. Because as I said, for the first six episodes and, and into seven and eight, she doesn't really have a reason to exist. She's the whiny, intrusive sister at Marie Warner's wedding. And there's, there's some sort of connection between this whole family and what's going on today, but we don't really know what. And it's at this point that actually she exists within the main story. She ends up getting really caught up in everything, doesn't she? But Sarah Winter is able to show that she can act finally, which is very very nice to see and yeah you know the only criticism i'd say about it is that kate gets tortured for nearly an hour and nothing happens to her i mean she ends up with a little nick under her left ear and that's it nothing else actually happens to her in that hour so that's my one sort of reservation but i think sort of looking at as a general picture obviously kate's rescue is is a big part of episode 10 but i think episode 10 largely because of that but obviously because of other reasons as well i think episode 10 is the strongest of the season to this point it is relentlessly tense. I mean, from start to finish, you feel like this is where things go from, well, there's a nuclear bomb around and we have to find it, to there's a nuclear bomb, we have to find it now. And I think that now bit is very crucial because the real-time element, the battling against time thing, it's existed before now. But I don't think it's it's quite been honed and, and perfected and, and, and really really become the focus as much as they wanted it to up until this episode coming in to save Kate and, you know, we're now going to go look for Syed Ali, all the stuff that's happening on the periphery as well. It finally hits home that this is where we're at for me. Yeah, an interesting twist too with Marie as she gets revealed to be 
actually the one that has the terrorist ties. And I think that her whole relationship with Reza was, I'm still trying to figure that out in my mind. If I think she, I think it started out as just a play, but I think she started to develop feelings at some point, but, um, but yeah, so, and, and it's interesting kind of watching her, her reactions change. I mean, once, once they, they, they made the reveal, it's like, it's like, it's like, right before it's like she has this one personality and then as soon as it's revealed that that she's not good all of a sudden everything it's like someone like turned the, the lights out and now she's like yeah she has a personality now yeah <laughs> that's that's my thing so, like she doesn't in the, in the start and then and then she's evil and she does yeah so maybe they should have just introduced that at the beginning that would made her character more interesting throughout it, that, it that actually would, probably yeah. would have been nice if they if they dropped more hints prior to to the actual reveal that maybe there's something there, but I don't know. Maybe there's more there and I just haven't caught it. It's Joel's Nina argument again for three weeks ago, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I'm not as strong on that though. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you are right though on that. I, I, I would agree with you on that. I think, I mean, it does come out of absolutely nowhere, isn't it? Because no one, no one suspects her ever, you know, there are issues with 24 later in the show, particularly, but even here, you know, the racial politics angle, the, the racial profiling angle that race calls Tony out for. When you look at season two as a whole, I don't think it looks too bad. It doesn't look great at the start, I must admit. But, you know, you have this element where everyone suspects Razor for the reason, you know, reasons. And then it becomes increasingly clear to us, albeit not dropped by CTU, because, you know, why would they drop a suspect so quickly? But increasingly clear to us that it's not him. And then it becomes potentially Bob Warner. And then it becomes increasingly clear that it's not Bob Warner. You never, I don't think there's ever a point where you suspect Marie up until 10 seconds before you learn that it is Marie. I think there is legitimate criticism for there's no hints and it comes out of nowhere and all this. But I think actually, once again, the reveal itself is, is, is stunningly well handled. I mean, it's, it's great when you realize with Razor and the agent Razor saying nobody's got access to the laptop except and he stops and pauses and thinks for two seconds and the agent gets shot and we cut up and it's Marie there and the, you know the music has just stopped right there there's this, this tense build up of, of Sean Cattery's score and it just stops there and you kind of go oh now I get it now I get why Kate's involved, why she got kidnapped, why, you know, what all this this stuff that CTU have been looking into is happening, what the connection, why this family even exists in the show. Everything now makes sense. And it, it, it works. It really, really works. And it's nice and poetic as well, because their wedding was meant to start at six o'clock and she suits him a couple of seconds before the end of the 6 p.m. hour. I never made that connection. That's interesting. I was uh, season two. I mean, <laughs> like I said, like I said, I haven't rewatched it in a long time. Season two is one of the ones where I could tell you a lot of the plot, but I couldn't really place it in hours per se up until I'm rewatching it now. Marie killing Razor was one of the things where I thought I'm fairly certain that's at the end of five till six p.m. and the irony, you know, the irony, the the poetic nature of it is very much that that's when they were going to get married. And no, Marie never. Prob- I don't. I, I don't think Marie had feelings for Razor. I think it's all a complete act the whole way through. But you know, this 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 relationship that supposedly was the perfect couple, they're in love, they're gonna get married. Marie, no, no feelings for Razor, is a terrorist, shoots him cold blooded, point blank, and that's it. Yeah. And of course, on the terrorist side, we also have Syed Ali, which which Jack rescued Marie or Kate, rescued Kate from Syed Ali's custody. And and they go in and of course there's the whole racial profiling thing that takes place the uh 
staking out the mosque and and the whole thing yeah of course we're racial profiling jack's like yeah of course we are but this is who we're trying to find so it i mean it's what it is and then of course jack does the move to where he allows a civilian to go in undercover into a dangerous situation or at least potentially dangerous situation and and of course things don't always go according to plan those kind of things with jack and so but anyway he was able to they found him at least said syed and they were able to be able to track him down after a series of tracking him i thought it was really interesting how syed was able to try to fake his death and it almost worked but jack was able to figure it out quickly i think i can't remember i can't remember now what it was that stood out his trousers were three inches too short that's what it was yeah so i knew it was something like with the clothes or whatever yeah so that was a an interesting move and then jack his interrogation of him and kate's horror the look of horror on her face as she hears what the plan is and she's like what i mean i don't know about you but i kind of forgot that syed ali was a character in the sense of i picture when i before i watched it here i pictured syed ali in three different scenes one of them was the burning man and obviously he's not in that the second was him being interrogated tortured you know having his family threatened on camp on the video and the third is him getting shot outside CTU in half a dozen episodes time. That's my three prevailing memories of Syed Ali. I kind of, when he appeared in episode nine and started talking to Kate as like a normal human, not bloodied and not on fire and not being shot, just a normal man. I kind of, oh yeah, he's in this. He actually is a character first. I I mean, I don't know about you. Maybe that was just me. Mm. Yeah, I never really thought too much about it myself, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's unlike a lot of other villains he's very not prominent is he i mean he he exists in name quite early on in the show and obviously he is sort of this force almost that presides over the nuclear bomb threat but unlike a drazen's or a stephen saunders or a marwan or anyone else he kind of exists mainly off screen in people's dialogue he doesn't really appear that much which is i feel it's very strange for a 24 villain that is kind of interesting, but but I kind of like that tactic to where it's like, as you're going through, your mind is building up who this person is. And then it's interesting, too, because a lot of times then you see them and you're like, well, that doesn't look like mm. this evil mastermind that I was picturing in my head. And so now that you mentioned that, that I kind of have that thought in my head now that the buildup didn't quite match what you look like. But then again, looks can be deceiving. And so, which I think is interesting also. I really love the interrogation of Sayedali. I think it's probably one of Jack's best. Certainly, maybe not certainly, maybe not his, maybe not his most brutal. I was thinking, I, I forgot about Pavel Tokarev. Um, yeah, you know, again, I feel it is a little bit of Jack's destructive, depressive streak, isn't it? That he is very much willing to let this man believe. And, and I don't think he ever intended on killing his children or his wife. I think that was all ever going to be an act. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a conversation between him and the uh, someone on a radio, I think, where it seems to be quite clear that the plan all along was to fake the son's death and to fake the second son's death and the wife's death if it got, if it got to that point. But, you know, it, it is a reminder of how dark and how brutal Jack can be, that actually he's going to make this man think that he's killing his family, his, his innocent 12-year-old sons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember that seeing the first time. Like, oh my word, I can't believe you did that. But it's a, it, it's. I, f- I feel like we're a little bit desensitized to it because we've obviously watched Twenty Four over and over and over and over and over. Obviously, we've had a lot of TV between now and sorry to, since two thousand and three to now. 
wasn't that in 2003? That must have been fairly horrifying, I feel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, and, and, and sometimes even though you know it's coming, it's still, there's still a little bit of that shock, still a little bit, at least for me where it's like, oh yeah, I, I, I forgot you did actually do that. So, but yeah, kicking the chair over, making it look like that, that happened. But so then we have Mason, we talked about him a little bit already, but I agree that at the first part of the season, I think we mentioned it last week too, that his character is not very well liked, but then after getting exposed and he has a date stamped on his forehead now that he starts to change his character a little bit. It's like, oh, I should probably try to make right some of these situations and so he's trying to like with michelle he's trying to be this father figure and kind of give some some advice and things like that and um he he brings his son in to try to restore that relationship because they've been they've had a strained relationship for years and he wants to make it up and force the son's very standoff. He's like, hey, okay, this is not cool. Bringing me in here like this. He had him arrested. He does. <laughs> it's it's do actually that. hilarious that he has his own son arrested. NCIS was at least Eric Christian Olsen, by the way. His son didn't think it was very, very humorous, though. But no. <laughs> but then why would you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny to it's no, funny maybe, to us. It's not funny to him. No. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> so yeah, so, so just that whole situation that, that's where you start to really start to I guess, get sympathetic start to feel bad for George and maybe even hope that, okay, maybe there's something that can turn it around or something like that. Some way of being able to redeem him uh, as a character. And of course we know that he does that, but, but yeah, so this is about where that starts to take place. I think Zonda Berkeley really comes into his own in these episodes. Like you mentioned, the scene with his son, the scene with Michelle, which I'll talk about in more detail in a second. Also, the scene where he interrogates Razor and Bob. And uh, well, there's a couple of scenes with Razor where he sort of throws him up against a wall and is, I think Tony says he, he, he wants to do his job like never before. He is a little bit reckless. He is a little bit Jack Bauer, but it works. I think Xander Berkeley sells it. I think it fits for Mason's character at this point. And it is a really nice and refreshing thing to see compared to sort of his bureaucracy and all of his nonsense from season one, um, inadvertently or directly letting Terry get killed. Yeah, and I yeah. think his attitude change probably, I mean, directly tied to the fact that he literally has nothing to lose. Yeah. And yeah, so exactly. it's like, well, might as, uh, let me put my all into this and, and at least I can go down as a hero, basically. Yeah. You know what, go and threaten and intimidate these prisoners, these potential criminals that are who knows what their involvement is. What does it matter to me? I'm going to be dead tomorrow. And if I don't do it, then a nuclear bomb might go off. And we all might be dead. So who cares sort of thing? You know, it's, it's a very reckless to protocol and doing things by the book and everything like that. But it is very entertaining to watch, I think. Yeah. Um, but as for, you know, as for his son, it's a really nice scene. It is actually this scene and, and the phone call earlier that he makes to him when John says he won't come and see him. It's these scenes where I finally become sympathetic to George and that never stops until his death. It is this moment that happens. It's very raw, very emotional. It's very sad. You know, it's a nice, it's a tragic build. He comes in and sort of George is trying to be nice and not telling everything that's going on. Starts offering him this, all this money and it kind of just devolves into this hug and sadness. And it's great. It is really, really great. And it's a nice way of showing that us that actually George Mason is a human because we've spent a lot of this time with him seeing him as as almost a caricature of just bureaucracy and stopping everyone from doing what they should be or what we need them to be doing because we know that they're doing the right thing even if they're not doing it by the right methods he actually becomes someone you can like and you mentioned Michelle scene as well I think that's 
one of the you know there are a lot of george mason quotes that i would always think of as being great quotes if you ask me to name them this isn't one that i'd initially remembered but it's also possibly his best scene or one of his best scenes of establishing with michelle actually don't wait around for your life you know i wasted my life i took the offer from dod because i wanted five thousand dollars a year more and i made everyone else miserable as a result and myself miserable don't do that. Be better than me. Do what you want to love. Do what you love. It's an absolutely superb scene. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. And then you wrote down here about his quote, what are you going to do tomorrow as well? That, that's, that's the Michelle scene I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, very good. Very good for sure. And one thing that I think that's interesting too is George Berkeley. I read Alexander Berkeley, kind of mixing character and real name. Alexander <laughs> <laughs> Berkeley, he, I read something or, or watched something to where where I learned that he does not like to have like long standing roles. He likes to come in, do a role for a short time, do a great job, then move on to the next one. So he was actually glad when he was getting killed off because he was already in one season. Now he's into another season. He's like, okay, I'm overstaying my welcome in that. And so he likes being able to do more of the short term type things. And so I I just thought that was an interesting little fact about him. I mean, he met his wife on 24, so he can't complain too much. Yeah. <laughs> now we have some other things here. We have a introduction of a true patriot other than Jack, <laughs> where we find out that Bob Warner is CIA. And so he's trying to, that, that is one thing where he is consistently throughout the season so far trying to stand up saying, no, I know that Reza is not a terrorist he's not this he's not that and he says i did my own background check and 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 especially knowing now that bob is cia his background check would have been a whole lot more thorough than anything that kate was trying to do but yeah so we saw that and i remember when i first heard that i thought okay well that's kind of a cop-out almost but I, i think thinking back on it and looking at it it works well with his character and what he's trying to do does although it's fairly inconsequential isn't it because he's you have this reveal that he's freelancing with the cia and and actually i never considered how that impacts the background check and how obviously kate said that she ran a background check and bob was like i ran one he's fine i never actually considered the fact that oh his would be really really thorough and razor would definitely be clean but yeah you know it, it doesn't really exist beyond the fact that he is cia you know he tells that to tony and this is why he explains that he's innocent and how he knows that Razor's innocent and all this. But beyond that, there's not really anything to it. It's a bit of a weird one. Yeah. I like John Terry, though. Like, I mean, he's great when he comes into Lost the year after this. He's great here. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, that even with his connection to the CIA, that he never suspected his daughter, Marie, being part of it either. No, and, and to- I can't remember whether it's in, I think it is in this stretch that we're talking about here where Tony sort of establishes to him about, or they actually have a conversation about it and how she was in London when her mother died and went traveling for a while, came back, stopped talking about all the political things. You are right. Actually, you'd have thought that the trained CIA operative or the trained CIA freelance, sorry, would be able to spot these sides and actually think, hmm, something's not right here. But he doesn't. And we end up with Marie helping to try and detonate a nuclear bomb. So good work, Bob Warner. Mm-hmm. Can't think of a good, easy transition, but, <laughs> but, but going back to kind of the 
good-ish, bad-ish characters here. We have Roger Stanton. Good-ish, Roger Stanton. (laughs) Well, he's supposed to be on the good side doing (laughs) very bad, stupid things. So I wasn't sure how to describe it on that. He is is very much not a good guy at all. (laughs) Well, he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be, yes. Yes. But it's interesting because you've had Eric Rayburn be this slimy guy who has killed all these people in the CTU. Roger Stanton comes in and within an hour, the ambassador's plane gets shot down and instantly you have this sense of, well, there's something not right about him too. You can have characters come in and they seem an upgrade on the previous one. Like uh, season five ends up with, I can't remember her name, who comes in from from downstairs to replace Edgar. And obviously there is a whole storyline with that. But actually she comes in and you see instantly that she's going to be okay. She's a good person. She's not going to be a mole or anything like that. She comes in and, and it's nice. Roger Stanton comes in and Harris Yulin, credit to him, is fantastic. But you instantly go, there's something not right about this guy. There's something here that David's going to regret bringing him in because it just doesn't feel like he's there to be helpful it doesn't feel like he's telling everyone the whole story Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and of course along with roger his partner sherry (laughs) i don't know if there's much that needs to be said about sherry (laughs) i really like the 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 conflict that she and lynn have i mean that's great penny johnson gerald is as much as we hate sherry and we do hate sherry i think everyone hates sherry penny johnson gerald is fantastic there's a there's a really nice scene I think it's when she's made the changes to the speech about there's a threat and everything like that to to cover the journalist accusations. There's a really nice scene where she looks at Lynn having let her take credit for the revisions. She has a really smug look. I think there's a couple of other really smug look that Gerald just pulls off with just complete conviction. And it fits perfectly for Sherry. As I say, as much as Sherry's character is awful and we all hate her, it's, it's a fantastic performance, you've got to say. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing, too. As we talk about this, we talk about characters we don't like and characters we do like and different things like that. And and there's a lot of the characters that we don't like, but it's the character we don't like, not the portrayal of the character or the actor and everything like that, too. So, I mean, like you said, Sherry's like one of those where it's like you don't like the character, but it's like you like to not like her. I kind of think the, for me, it's kind of the same thing with Logan. You don't like him, but I think the actor does really well playing the character. Yeah. At least for the most part. So again, it's one of those that you you love to hate. And honestly, I mean, nothing would be the same if Sherry was there. Obviously, maybe things would be better, but <laughs> it would not yeah, be the same without Sherry. Imagine how much Sherry. entertainment we'd have been robbed of. How much joy we'd have been robbed of, of her just being the confident, arrogant, smug, I'm in control of this situation beyond your wildest imagination. It's it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And her interactions with Dennis Haysbert are, are terrific. Really terrific. Yeah, and I, and I can't remember now. I'm trying to rack my brain. But throughout season one, she kept saying, I'm doing this for your good. I'm, it, and and I don't remember if she said that for this, but she probably would still be holding up. Well, I'm doing the best thing that there is. This is the right decision. This is the right thing that needs to be done. And yeah, it's maybe questionable. I mean, she, she like ups her game. And so in season one, it was all like just cover up with this. It's like she's actively participating and then covering up her participation and and all that. And she, she wants to cover it up because it's going to be it's going to look bad on David. 
but it, she's covering herself. That's the big thing. And to be fair, the thing that's going to look worse on David is the thing that he actually does, which is have a Roger Stanton arrested. That's fine. That's tolerable. And then has him tortured. And we, you know, we no doubt later down the line, this does come back to bite him. But it is a massive moment for David to actually grant Ted Simmons this option to go as far as he wants to torture Rod, Roger Stanton to find this bomb. He only wants to find the bomb. He doesn't care about Roger getting hurt or anything like that. This is his only priority. And it is. It is It is a huge, huge moment after his moral high ground stance in season one and, and to a large extent in season two. This is now kind of, well, we're beyond all realms of let's stay moral. We're beyond all pretense of we can do this by the book. This is we have to find this bomb by whatever means necessary. And I think it's it's an interesting development for David in his role as president because he realizes that ultimately his moral moral code, his moral playbook, it can't happen in times of immense crisis like this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not much more else to be able to <laughs> say. On that it, right it, now. It's, I mean, I was trying to make notes for this, and it it does feel it kind of just chugs along. I don't, you know, look, we talked about Kim and how that pops up every so often to remind you it's there and it's really annoying. This kind of pops up every so often to keep on going along and I guess remind you that it's there. But it's also just, it's background noise. It works. It's fine. I enjoy it. You know, like I said, I really enjoy the Sherry V. Lynn stuff. I really enjoy Haysbert at all times. I really enjoy Penny Dutton's Gerald. But ultimately the story itself kind of just, it's a building block. It exists. It's got to be part of the story because of all the stuff that's happening with it. But it doesn't ever feel... Like it has to be the most engaging thing and and the the big takeaway from an episode. It just, it runs and we get from point A to point B and it's fine for me, Mm -hmm. which I I can't criticize that. You know, it, yes, you'd love it to be sort of brilliant and engaging and everything like that, but it works and I have no problem with it only getting to that stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just overall this, at this point, we're halfway through the season. We're not even over the whole thread about the nuclear bomb yet that's coming here in a couple episodes but so we're at this halfway point and there's still this tension of there's this nuclear bomb still looming and waiting to to go off we'll be getting into that as they discover that here in the next couple of episodes here and anything else to add as we throw in a couple of couple of bits of trivia back to the old days of 24 legacy when i used to always have trivia we never seem yeah. to have time for it but i've got a couple of bits and we've got time so i'm gonna go away with it um <laughs> so one of the things that i feel you know i, I noted it down at the time and i end up looking it up jack's whispering to nina after she's taken down when she's about to kill him he, he whispers something to her do you know what it is no it was meant to be jack tells nina i'll hunt you down for the rest of my life or sorry, the rest of your life, which makes sense for the character. Supposedly, Kiefer Sutherland, in the take, ad-libbed, Sarah, I love you. Why did you marry Xander? <laughs> That's, what a great thing. And so, you know, Nina, Sarah Clark looks completely horrified and shocked. And I think it's a genuine reaction to kind of, what did he just say? <laughs> oh, I like that. That's yeah. funny. Harris Eulin, I mentioned before, Roger Stanton, he is in nine episodes. He is not credited in any single one of them, which is rather staggering. The reason for this is that he wanted to have his name appear on screen by itself. Obviously, you have sort of two or three appear at the same time, and he wanted to be by himself. That couldn't happen. So he said he didn't want to be credited, hmm. which is really bizarre. Interesting. I mean, it, it's strange that a, it, it's the longest running 
character appearance or actor appearance in the show that's not credited at any point with nine episodes. Hmm. We've also got a couple of actors who appear in these stretch of episodes and appear later in the show as a different character as well, which is a bit odd. Anthony Azizi plays Fahin, and he also plays Rafiq, who is Marwan's tech in day four. And Farron Tahir plays the Moss Greeter when... Sorry, the Moss where Syed Ali is praying. He also plays Thomas Sherrick, who is best known in 24 as the bloke that Jack shoots in the knee to find out what the real target at 8 o'clock is in season 4. Others, too. I'm not sure about this particular season, but there's definitely a lot of them where they've used them in in different places. They use one actor in one season and then the same guy in in a different season, a different character. I think there's been some to where it's like they were a bad guy in one and a good guy in another and... Yeah, this is this is we, true. We of, um, this is true of Farron to hear the Moskri to hear, and, and being one of the people involved in the Hella kidnapping in season four, and it works in reverse as well. The I mean, we, I'll mention it again when we get to it in a couple of couple of months' time. But one of the brothers that Jack and Paul Reigns hide out with after the EMP at McLennan Forester in season four is the terrorist kid that Tony ends up using as a terrorist in season seven. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah, interesting. Lots, lots of repeat roles. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they keep killing everybody off. They don't have any yeah. to be able to choose from. <laughs> they also use a lot of, this is my last trivia point, they also use a lot of repeat music in these seasons. Season, episode 10, that one I mentioned that's probably the best to this point, uses almost exclusively throughout the entire hour what is known on the expanded soundtrack as Mandy Suite, which is the music that ultimately plays when Jack and Tony go and take down Mandy in season four, or they, they infiltrate her apartment complex. It plays a lot throughout this episode. Um, and it, it is just a wonderful, wonderful tension build. I might send it to you so you can listen to it. But it, it is just, it is it is so good to listen to. Again, obligatory Sean Callery plug. Thanks, Joel, for doing it last week when I wasn't here. Has to be praised every week because he is just that good. See, that's one of the things I, I tend to miss is I don't pay attention to the music as much. I, I know I feel it because I, I know it adds to it, but I don't generally pay a whole lot of attention to it. Maybe I should start doing that. <laughs> it's because I have a like an almost encyclopedic knowledge of the music for seasons four and five. So <laughs> whenever I hear those sort of beats, there was one and I couldn't place it the other day in, a, in another episode. I think it's one of the later episodes that we aren't talking about today. I couldn't place it. I need to go back and listen to it and try and work out where it's from. <laughs> yes, I'm oh, sad. Sorry, good. but you know. All right. Well, next week we'll be getting through season two, episode 13 through 18. A lot of switches and changes and things like that going on as we pivot our focus from nuclear bomb to being able to stop an unnecessary world war three brigade going on and so forth and so kind of switching the focus and so we'll be going through that next week if you have any feedback yourself that you would like to include on the podcast definitely reach out to us you can check out the website 24faithful.com and there's a way for you to be able to reach out there or you can even call in and leave a voicemail you can call 405-771-0567 and be able to leave us some feedback that way as well. And that way you can even hear your voice on the podcast, which is kind of cool to some people at least. I know Bradley likes hearing his voice. So you can be like say, Bradley. Anything that, sort of take, <laughs> anything that takes up time where you don't have to hear my voice is probably a good thing. So yes, by uh, all means, definitely come and leave a voicemail. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.